Hi, this is Big Talk, Michael Glab here. My guest today is Nancy Hiller, one of my favorite people in Bloomington. Nancy is a woodworker. Well, it's true, I'm a woodworker, but that is a huge category, actually, because there are woodworkers who turn decorative pens, and there are woodworkers who carve spoons or clogs. There are woodworkers who are joiners and carpenters, so I prefer to identify myself as a cabinet maker. It's a term that encompasses built-ins and freestanding furniture. In your wooden world, cabinet maker means a person who makes furniture, too. I furniture and cabinetry. Yeah. In England, which is where I trained many, many years ago, uh, the word pretty much was always just cabinet maker. And it encompassed both. But here, and it may be more recent, I'm not sure, in the States, more and more there seems to be a distinction made between furniture makers and cabinet makers, with cabinet makers often being viewed as somehow lesser than furniture makers. It seems very daunting to me that there's so much absolute precision that's demanded. Well, actually... It's funny because precision is a relative thing, of course. So, for example, furniture makers are regarded as um, Neanderthals compared to engineers and millwrights, people who work with metal in, I mean, serious thousandths of an inch. Uh So woodworkers in general tend to have it pretty easy in the precision department compared to people who work with metal. There are these television shows having to do with making tables or making uh, chairs. And I think a lot of people watch and a lot of people wish they could start doing it, but it costs a lot of money to get into this business, doesn't it? There's a lot of tools. You have to have a space and you have to know what the heck you're doing. Well, that is the common perception, but some of the people I know, and certainly I fall into this category, didn't have any of those things when we started, so we just wanted to make things. So back in the late 1970s, when my then-boyfriend and I had no furniture to speak of, and we wanted some furniture, and we couldn't afford furniture on what money we were making at our very low-paid jobs. Um, I just started cobbling things together because I guess I wasn't afraid to. I had no idea whatsoever of what I was doing, but that didn't stop me. Was this before your training? Yeah, this was before Uh my training. And um, I didn't have any tools. I just borrowed my boyfriend's hardware store tools. And... um, literally sawed pieces of wood by hand with his carpenter's saw either like on a chair or on our table Uh you know at the it wasn't a fancy dining table it was a little gate leg table that my mother had bought at a junk shop years before and given me and um 
I mean, because if you want to do something, you do it. Unless, I, I guess I'm not one of those people who are that constrained by what I should and shouldn't do. So I just started making things, and the reason I ended up getting, going for a basic furniture training is because my stepfather would constantly come by and visit, and just never failed to criticize what I was doing. And one day he added, you should take a carpentry course to his usual insult. And we had such a contentious relationship that to spite him, I called up the local vocational college, which had a woodworking department, and um, asked about training programs, and I ended up quitting my factory job and going to the vocational college where I did a city and guilds certificate in furniture making. At that time, I mean, I didn't have tools and I didn't have a workshop. I literally set things up in our dining room. It wasn't a fancy dining room, it just yeah. had a brick floor and plaster walls and an open fireplace. And um, fortunately, my boyfriend didn't object. He was very long-suffering about it all. <laughs> so I just started practicing and making little things to help offset the cost of our rent. For that year, I would go to classes and then come back and work. And gradually, I would, when I could afford a new tool, like a new chisel, I would buy one. Um, they were all hardware store quality in those days, the things I was able to buy. My grandfather, um, when I turned 21, very generously bought me a little kind of do-it-yourself combination planer and joiner machine. And that was an enormous asset to mm. have. Um, it was just a little one that also went in the dining room, and so I was constantly sweeping up shavings. But I don't know. I mean, it was not a typical kind of middle-class um, <laughs> domestic arrangement for a not. couple of people, but I know enough young people today who would do the same thing. Nancy, that's an interesting story about how you got involved in woodworking, which brings us to the fact that you have a whole book of stories called Making Things Work, Tales from a Cabinet Maker's Life, and that cabinet maker's life is yours. Over the years, I have been involved in authoring a couple of other books um, that started when a former client, and who has since become a friend, but at the time she was my client, Lee Sandweiss, asked if I would like to write a book about Hoosier cabinets for the IU Press, where she was the sponsoring editor at the time for uh -huh. trade publications. And it's a this is a very long story, but I did end up writing that book um, because I have had a long-standing interest in the history of kitchen cabinetry and other built-in furniture. And quite frankly, although... I am a full-time furniture and cabinet maker. Uh, I love to do research and writing as well. The other part of my background is 
more academic. And so it was a lot of work, but it was very satisfying to write that book. And after that, I followed that book with a second book for the IU Press called A Home of Her Own, which is about women who have formed intense relationships with their home while living without a human partner. And my partner in doing that book was Kendall Reeves, Mm. who um, produced a portfolio of gorgeous photographs that illustrate the book. So even while I was writing both of those books and working in my shop, Before I had written either of those books, I had already decided I wanted to write another book. And the title came to me one day when I was working on a job with my then employee, Daniel O'Grady, who was living in Bloomington at the time. And of course, the title has a double meaning. Um, Making things work is, of course, about the work of making things. Yeah. But it is also a word, a, a an expression that we would often use, and I certainly use whether or not I speak the words on a almost daily basis to indicate how we get things done. Let's just make it work. And, of course, there are all kinds of metaphors that you can spin out of that that pertain to many different dimensions of life. You don't want anybody thinking that this is any kind of a memoir or anything. Right. It is not written as a memoir. This book uses memoir as a tool. Okay. In other words, it's an instrumental use of the memoir genre. It is not memoir as an end. Yeah. So, in other words, I draw on stories and experiences from my own life to make certain points. And I divided the book into three different categories. The first section, the first of the three sections, is more narrative and chronological in a sense. It it is not strictly chronological, but it deals with the time that I spent in England, and it basically sets up some themes and um, provides some of the background to the rest of the book. That is how I came to be in England and how I came to train as a furniture maker and the first three jobs that I had in workshops in England, uh, each of which was an absolute trip, culminating in a short-term temporary job at the Imperial War Museum at Duxford near Cambridge, which Mm. was a complete fabulous blast because of my co-workers there who were all unabashedly sexist (laughs) and uninhibited in their use of the English language. It was a super great time. It was very fun. And and we got along like gangbusters. You're being serious. I am totally being okay. serious. I loved those guys. And I'm. they were all guys. So I was the only woman working in their workshops at the time. I would hope that there are other women now there working in the workshops. Most of them were on the way to retirement from one or another branch of the armed forces, I Mm. think. And these were civil service jobs. 
at this museum. And that's the first section of the book. It's called The English Years. The second section of the book is called Dream On. And the overarching theme of that section is basically pulling apart some of the fantasies and myths that surround a life of woodworking. Fantasies and myths? Yes. What does this mean? Let me try to explain by citing one or two examples. Okay. There is this prevailing notion that if you are an excellent craftsman, you must also be an excellent human being. That is, that somehow excellence in craft correlates to excellence in moral tenor or ethical behavior. Sure. And um, so one of the stories takes on that myth. Uh Uh-oh. Yes, uh uh-oh. It was a lot of fun to write. Are you going to get in any trouble for the things you're writing here? Well, I certainly hope not. Uh, I should add that the identities have been changed. I'm not trying to, I am absolutely not trying to insult or offend any particular person or persons. I am simply trying to make some points that are very widely appreciated by professional craftsmen in a number of different trades and crafts, but rarely acknowledged in public. And what's the third part? The third section deals with the everyday business of making things work. And so it is called Making Things Work. Uh So it relates some true stories such as my time employing Daniel Mm -hmm. and the trip that we ended up taking to Washington, D.C. when some people hired my business to do their kitchen. And I say my business, not me, because Daniel was my full-time employee then. So they hired us to design, build, and install the cabinetry in their early 20th century house in Northwest Washington, D.C. And people always say, oh, how were these friends of yours? And no, they weren't. They were complete strangers. This is how most of my out-of-town jobs happen. Um, Somebody is Googling some relatively esoteric thing, such as 1910 sink. Mm -hmm. And they come across my website, and some of these brave people contact me by phone or email. And typically what I do is arrange to discuss their job by phone. We'll have a preliminary discussion by phone, and I will ask them for some basic information, such as when do they have a schedule in mind, do they have a budget in mind, tell me a little bit about the house and other work you've done or thought about doing, that kind of thing. And in other words, I'm trying to find out whether there's a likelihood that we can work together. Right. And then if they say, 
if it looks good to both of us on that phone call, based on that phone call, then I will typically arrange to visit and meet with them in person for a preliminary kind of design discussion and um, to take measurements. And based on that, and of course, yes, they do have to pay me to travel uh -huh. there. I was wondering about that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't afford to just fly around. You're visiting. no jet setter. No, <laughs> I, in fact, I am a homebody. My best place to be is home, working. But, no, I, I charge them for the time that I am going to spend on the trip and for the travel expenses. Um, and I do my best to yeah. keep the costs affordable because... If people are going to hire me from out of town to work on their old house, they are typically my kind of people, the kind yeah. of people I really, really want to work for. Right. These have been some of my most fun jobs, like for a couple of people in Chicago who are associated with one of the universities there who are so, so deeply into the history of their 1915 house that... Um, yeah, I mean, I don't get clients like this in Bloomington typically, so I'll do my best to make it affordable for these people. You say part of your inspiration, late 19th, early 20th century design, which I assume probably means arts and crafts? Yes, I mean, that gets into a whole other big more complicated issue because you know we talk about arts and crafts as a style and it's not really a style as such it's much more complex than that and really it is something that i'm completely enmeshed in right now there are some things that people think of as arts and crafts some of the work i end up doing yes sure and then some of it is just i mean when people think of arts and crafts and kitchens, people, or even shaker kitchens or Victorian kitchens, people are typically transposing furniture styles onto the kitchen huh. and thinking that that's what is, that's how a kitchen is going to look if it was from the period when shakers were flourishing or the mm -hmm. period when in the around the turn of the century when arts and the arts and crafts mo movement was in full swing um, the fact is kitchens typically did not have furniture like the rest of the house even if they had freestanding cabinetry it was much more utilitarian in design these people have a, a have an idea and they're taking it and to put it in a room that things never looked like that. Well, that's what happens with a lot of yeah. um, kitchen design today, especially with some of the more commercial firms. But those people are hiring me because yeah. I will tell them this. But uh -huh. I'm not going to tell them, here's what you have to do, because it's their kitchen. Okay. And so there are always compromises. Uh -huh. I just want to offer them the information and then in allow them to decide where on the spectrum of period authenticity they want to end up because quite honestly most people do not want to cook on a stove from the 19 teens right um although my last kitchen out of town kitchen client did 
have a uh, early 20th century stove and fridge and sink all Refurbished. brought back to life. Really? And, and she did it with a lot of ingenuity and not a lot of money. Huh. But no, people are usually hiring me because they know that I care about the history and I'm not just going to come to them with some vague notion of what a Victorian kitchen might look like. But so what I was saying about the out-of-town jobs is really that after the preliminary visit, I can't, I've taken measurements, I've seen their house, I've assessed the whole situation vis-a-vis logistics, and we can, I can give people a much more informed estimate of what the job will cost. And that's how those out-of-town jobs have happened. You know, I was hoping uh, to introduce you as a, a, a woodworker and an author, but I guess I should have thrown in you're an historian, too, no, in a I, sense. I'm not. History was always one of my worst subjects at school, so I would never claim that title because I have some historians, such as Eric Sandweiss, who are dear friends, and uh, I, you know, I wouldn't want them to... <laughs> Laugh at me for calling myself a historian when I am not trained as a historian. Now, interestingly <laughs> enough, uh, another book that you were involved with, uh, that you were the editor for, was Historic Preservation in Indiana Essays from the Field. That's also from IU Press, and uh, that included a bunch of people who were, who are knowledgeable about the historic nature of structures and so forth. Right telling their tales, and you helped put that one together. Well, that's because for many years I've been involved in historic preservation in Bloomington and Monroe County, uh, primarily as a sort of advocate. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it's hard to know how you can help, and I think that one of the things that I can do or was able to do with that book was at least produce a collection of essays that the other writers and I hoped would inform people about what historic preservation is concerned with and some of the true stories, um, some of the preservation successes that have happened in our area, but also to inspire interest and just show how hard many people have worked to save some of Bloomington's and Monroe County's and Indiana's old buildings such as the Carnegie Library which mm -hmm. now houses the Monroe County History Center. Things change constantly Yeah, and Really, I mean, so if you want to talk about arts and crafts, the arts and crafts movement and many of the houses, other types of buildings and pieces of furniture that were made in that time um, have been wildly popular for several decades. But now mid-century modern is the thing. Oh. And, um, and it's if you think about it, it's sort of exasperating, but it's refreshing because we all need change. Yeah. I found something interesting about you, which I didn't know, and I wonder if we might get into it. You studied religion? 
Well, I don't usually refer to it that way, studied okay. religion, religions perhaps, but I did a degree, two degrees in religious studies. This was when, for many years, I didn't really feel fully invested in my career, even though it was my career. And it was your daily <laughs> bread. A, huh? Right, cabinet yeah. maker. Shortly after my former husband and I moved to the Bloomington area, I started taking classes part-time at first, just to for the intellectual stimulation. I was just blown away by the quality of the teaching at Indiana University, which it's something you might hear from the marketing people at the university, but you often won't hear it from a lot of other people in the community because huh. it's our local university yeah. and it's easy to find fault. There are so many outstanding faculty members at this university, and for students who are actually interested in learning, first of all, unfortunately, to have students who are really interested in learning is I guess, becoming so rare that those faculty members will treat students of that sort. It, it's a gift. Yeah. H how generous many people were with me when I was in school here. They were so generous with their time. And um, because they enjoyed the reciprocity that interested students bring to the student-teacher relationship. So, yeah. I ended up doing a bachelor's degree in religious studies thanks to funding that I got through the Honors College. Oh. And I worked in our business during that degree. And then after I finished that degree, I decided that maybe I could escape my life as a cabinet maker by going on to get a doctorate and teaching at the university level. And my department was, the people in the department were wonderfully encouraging and supportive and I got a fellowship that would have well it funded my first year of graduate school so I started the master's degree and I ended up completing the master's degree but I did not go on to get a doctorate because I before I had finished the master's I realized that a life in the world of publish or perish was not going to be right for me. Huh. Quite honestly, there are so many people who are absolutely devoted to researching and writing as well as teaching. I just felt like I wasn't as devoted as they were and as much as I enjoyed certain aspects of that life, I felt like we all know that there are more people being granted advanced degrees than there are real jobs for. Huh. And I decided to let those other people who were more certain about their path as academics, let them have those jobs. <laughs> Nancy Hiller, thanks so much for joining us on Big Talk. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I'm a big fan of you and your big talk. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs>